Well, you guys, June has been a whirlwind for the Thomas family. We celebrated a couple birthdays, a couple big performances, and then with a mixture of relief and dread, we finally had our turn with COVID. And we just squeaked out the recommended isolation period in time for our much-anticipated trip to France, from which we just returned a couple days ago. It's been kind of nonstop. I'm not sure it was the best idea I ever had to tell Chris that I could preach today coming off of all that. <laughs> but I did want to have this, let's call it last for now, chance to share with you guys as a community before our family really gets into the business of moving. Um, I might be back. I told Chris I'm happy to be on his guest list. But oh, with a full heart, this is my last time to like stand with you guys as one of the partners here. So I thank you for the 12 years we've spent in your company and for this opportunity tonight. Um, well, I thought the bulletins had to be printed early last week, but I guess I squeaked my title in under the deadline. <laughs> so we have just the first part printed, as Torin puts it up there. This is on Galatians 5, and it's titled A Fruity Story. But of course, I've been immersed in this high-speed, high-impact travel while I was reflecting on this text and discerning what God would say to this community. And so, of course, when that happens, you're going to get a travel log in this sermon. My, instead of my usual, like, topical roadmap, my direction today is framed more by a set of images, unapologetically inspired by these experiences over the last few weeks, and actually kind of as a model for how when you're chewing deeply on a text, there's a lot of things in your environment through which the Spirit can speak to you. So in the tradition of A.A. Mill and all those other old-fashioned masters of the big chapter title, the subtitle is Of Orders and Orchards, Quicksand and New Creation. Just under a week ago today, my family and I stood on those bluffs above the beaches at Omaha Beach in Normandy, trying to imagine the extent and gravity of the events that took place there in June 1944. And of course, paying our respects to the many who gave their lives for the freedom of others that they didn't even know. Did you get the picture for that, Torin? Yeah, you might have been there, or at least you've seen it. It's iconic. And if imagination doesn't rise to the challenge, which it really doesn't, of course, there are some images like the classic Saving Private Ryan which was acclaimed for its unflinching portrayal of the horrors of war, and that battle in particular. Those my age probably have seen it, so I'll remind you, but there are some here younger than me. So the idea with the movie is, shortly after D-Day, the military discovers that three out of four brothers in a family have been killed in action, two there in Normandy and one in the South Pacific. So a small platoon is given a mission, given orders to locate the fourth brother, uh, hoping he's alive, so he can at least be sent back to his family. But all the military knows about the fourth brother is that he parachuted in behind enemy lines on the first uh, beginning of the operation at D-Day, and if you know any history, you know that that mission was sufficiently confused and complicated that nobody really knew where he would have landed, or if he was even alive. As they face constant danger and loss in the course of their search, the soldiers in this platoon struggle. They wonder what could possibly make it worth it for all of them to risk their lives for this one nondescript guy. At one point they say, you'd better go home and cure some disease or invent a long-lasting light bulb or something, anything to make this seem worth it. Okay, spoiler alert, and you can close your ears if you want. Ryan survives. 
But we are made to understand as we see an elderly Ryan visit that cemetery with his family. Not a day has gone by of his life. It hasn't echoed with the words of the officer who pulled him close in as that last battle waned and whispered, earn this. What a burden. The film invites us to wonder, just how would one possibly do that? What level of achievement or saintliness could possibly enable a person to feel that you would earn the right to live your life at the expense of those others? How does one live in the light of that story? So I get to thinking how sometimes I think we approach our Christian life in a spirit too similar to Private Ryan's burden. We're often told that Christ died for us, made the ultimate sacrifice to accomplish our freedom from sin, and he did. And then sometimes pastors and teachers like to explicitly use these these D-Day stories or other of the many, many cultural narratives we have of heroic self-sacrifice to try to elicit in us the sense that we've been redeemed at great cost and we have, like, an obligation to live up to. And we're supposedly supposed to have good behavior sort of flow as a consequence of our gratitude for that and our sense of how unworthy were we to be rescued at so great a cost. I believe and suspect that we who value deeply that work of Christ on the cross and who speak of it often and think of ourselves as evangelicals are at no small risk of telling ourselves the wrong story. Not that we should not experience gratitude. Do not hear me say that for the grace that we have been given. That is right and healthy and holy. But if our spirituality is marked by even a hint of that command, earn this, make it worth it, then we are living in the wrong story. And I haven't even gotten to our text yet, but we're almost there. The thing is, the story that we understand ourselves to be living in will determine how we live that life. We all just celebrated Juneteenth for the first time. It's a federal holiday for all Americans. And that date celebrates not the Emancipation Proclamation, but the final announcement of freedom to enslaved people living in Texas. After the conclusion of the Civil War, two years after the proclamation had legally changed their status. They were officially free the whole time. But until they knew that they were living in a different story, nothing had changed in their environment. Nobody knows better the importance of living in the right story than the Apostle Paul. So with all that, I'd like us to hear Paul's words to churches he had planted in Galatia. In the letter to the Galatians, Paul is adamantly opposing a faction who are encouraging the Galatian believers to receive Male circumcision, that definitive mark of membership in Israel, according to the Sinai Covenant. And even though Paul has a really strong position on the issue, it's the only letter he doesn't begin with, I give thanks for you. It's not the ritual itself that matters so much to him. It's the story about Christ that this represents. So you can find Galatians in your pew Bibles. It's page 1171. And I invite you to stand up, take a stretch, and we will read. And... I'm going to depart from my usual practice just a bit by passing over verses 7 through 12. Um, There's some very strong language Paul uses there, and it's worthy of study. But I want to focus a little more today on the positive story that Paul is encouraging his hearers to grasp. Chapter 5. It is for freedom 
that Christ has set us free. Stand firm, then, and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. Mark my words. I, Paul, tell you that if you let yourselves be circumcised, Christ will be of no value to you at all. Again, I declare to every man who lets himself be circumcised that he is obligated to obey the whole law. You who are trying to be justified by the law have been alienated from Christ. You have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, we eagerly await by faith the righteousness for which we hope. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. We're going to pass down to verse 13. You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. For the entire law is fulfilled in this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. If you bite and devour each other, watch out, for you will be destroyed by each other. So I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other, so that you are not to do whatever you want. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now, the acts of the flesh are obvious, sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking and envying each other. Lord, thank you for your word. There's a lot to digest in this. I pray that you would bring to each heart precisely what you desire us to hear. In Jesus' name. You can be seated. So here in this passage, we find our well-known and beloved fruit of the Spirit verses. You know, the ones we memorized, some of us, and sang about in Sunday school. Afterwards, I'll sing you my song if you'll sing me yours. And sometimes we put them on mugs and cute rustic plaques for our wall for home decor. But this list of examples that Paul gives is really just a small plank in his big argument. I kind of think Paul would have been shocked to hear sermon series that take the fruit one at a time and like spell them out and encourage believers how best to live them. Not that that's not valuable, but I don't think it's his main point. See, in using the image of fruit, Paul is drawing on a long wellspring of scriptural tradition, especially and primarily the teaching of Jesus. And the essence of a fruit image is always this. External fruit reveals internal character. Jesus says a good tree does not bear bad fruit, and vice versa, and therefore by their fruits you shall know them. I'm afraid some of our efforts to tighten our grip and exhibit Christian virtue, have all the effectiveness of going through an orchard, tying apples and cherries and pears onto all the trees. 
It might look nice for a minute, maybe a photo op, but it's going to be a stinky mess pretty soon. It seems so obvious, but it bears repeating. Fruit expresses identity. The last place we stayed in Normandy was a charming bread and breakfast in this tiny little village um, outside Bayou where my children really enjoyed snuggling the cats and the friendly dog and talking back to the very vocal geese who were trying to eat Lydia's shoes over here. So we took a walk after dinner one evening on their nice big lawn. It was nice to get out of the city. And we realized that these large shady trees whose shade we enjoyed were full of fruit and on the branches and the ground. And as we get closer, the kids are like, hey, what is it? What kind of fruit is it? What tree is that? So we get a little closer, and we said, oh, they're cherries. They said, oh, too bad they're not ripe. So I looked a little closer, and I said, you know what? I actually think these are like something close to Rainier's that we have at home, and they are ripe when they're yellow with a little blush on them. Let's try them. And so we just sat there like pulling down the branches and picking a few of these fruit and having a sweet, um, free after-dinner snack straight off the tree. See, if you recognize the fruit, you know the nature of the tree. So this passage, fundamentally, is not about Christian virtue. It's about our identity in Christ. That's the story Paul is wanting to tell. And accepting Christ isn't a matter of just a verbal confession of belief, but of a change of identity, so that we become, what he calls later in the passage, those who belong to Christ. The expression is kind of striking in Greek. It's literally just those of Christ. Those. Those people who are Christ's. This identity, Paul fully roots in the work accomplished by Christ on the cross. He urgently wants the Galatians and us to grasp this truth. We are saved through Jesus Christ plus nothing. If you are in Christ, his saving work fully encompasses you and there's absolutely nothing you could add to it. If anything in your spiritual life smacks of earn this, if there is a hint somewhere in the back of your mind that's like our goodness that like gives meaning to that sacrifice, that somehow validates it, like it's worth it if we become good, then we're living in the wrong story. And this, I think, is why this seemingly arcane issue of circumcision elic elicits such a passionate response from Paul. To accept circumcision would be to say that to belong to Jesus, I first need to be part of some ethnic religious group. This would both add something to the work of Christ and limit the audience for who can accept that invitation, and Paul will have none of it. And the stories are so different from each other that he can't even say, oh, you know, it's a matter for personal choice. Like, you know, we live peaceably together with, like, infant baptism or adult baptism. This is not one of those for Paul. If you allow yourself, a Gentile believer allows himself to be circumcised, they're actually outside of grace and receive no profit from Christ's sacrifice. Because no other identity that you might have competes with your belonging to Christ. Not ethnic or religious. Your economic class, your gender, I don't care. Your nationality, being American, your political persuasion, not one of those can add a thing to your status in Christ. They have meaning in their own way. They're not meaningless. Those may influence the way your life plays out, but they don't have bearing here. You don't need Christ plus circumcision. It's not Christ plus patriotism or plus social justice advocacy, or plus being a good middle-class citizen, or plus being a sensitive artist and intellectual. We're saved by Christ plus nothing. 
But then in seeming tension with that absolute finality of Paul's conviction, this is one of the many, many passages in Scripture that actually insists that, hey, you know what, it matters how you live. It's of such great significance that Paul goes out of his way to underline his warning. You know, those who practice these works of the flesh actually don't inherit the kingdom of God. It's important to realize, if you're not familiar with it, that when Paul starts talking about the flesh, he doesn't mean your physical body. Our physical bodies have their issues, but they're just as redeemable as every other aspect of our beings. What Paul means by flesh is that selfish grasping and like turned in on itself nature that we all recognize in ourselves. We share it. It's recognizable even from outside the Christian tradition. One of my favorite sayings that grabbed my attention, I've always thought that Paul's indulging the flesh sounds a lot like the poet Rumi's pampering the greedy energy inside. That, that resonated for me, right? It's recognizable. So to belong to or to be in Christ, it's kind of one of those jargons that we throw around, is to say that rather than pampering that nature, we have to put that self-life to death as effectively as if it were on the cross with Jesus. Those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh together with its passions. Let's consider what that would have meant. To the ancient mind, there was nothing remotely heroic about this death. It was an ugly, disgraceful, scandalous spectacle. This is not a patriotic moment that inspired his disciples to deeds of greater courage. Eh, quite the opposite, you know, they went right into hiding, thinking maybe they were next. I dare say it did not even participate in that calculus of war in which one death can be considered justified because it saves many lives. Chief priests said that, but I've always found that very ironic. I think the meaning of Jesus' death, like we've found recently in Philippians, is found in his self-emptying humility, perfect obedience, and absolute love. That love that Chris read about, or Nathaniel read us about that nothing can separate us from. And it calls us, the one who calls us, calls us to that painful process of identifying with that death. So we release that claim on our self-life and allow ourselves to be transformed into that image of humility and obedience and love. But as central as it is, the cross is not the end of this story either. Our identity in Christ stems from our union with him in his death and his resurrection. If all Jesus did was actually to serve as a perfect sacrifice atoning for sin, I think he could have stayed dead. Have you ever thought about that? Think for a moment. No other sacrifice in the history of the temple worship ever got up and walked away afterwards. But they were atoning sacrifices. And on the mo morning after Good Friday, I, I venture to say that not one of Jesus' disciples understood themselves to be living in a new story. The church was not born that day. The story has to be completed. And that's why that is where Paul identifies the deficiency in the Galatians' thinking. The alternative to their thinking is this. Through the Spirit, we eagerly await by faith the righteousness in which we hope. We may not yet possess it, but our stance is marked by eager expectation for the fulfillment of all that has been promised to us in Christ. So like the Galatians, we're living in a story of Jesus' death, resurrection, and the giving 
of the Spirit. Hardly a page goes by in Paul's letters in which he does not invoke the living, active work and presence of the Holy Spirit, the identifying characteristic of those who belong to Christ. And if it ever gets translated little spirit, it should probably be big spirit, says Gordon Fee, and I'm, I'm with him on that. So many actions are ascribed to the Spirit. Tell you what, especially younger folks, if you haven't done this before, the next time you read through the New Testament, make it a treasure hunt. Look for all the things the Holy Spirit does in your life. You get a really long list. Just to name a very few, it's the Spirit who teaches us, reveals Jesus to us, and confirms that you are children of God. The Spirit convicts us of sin and intercedes for us. The Spirit brings life to your physical body and actually indwells us such that you could be called a temple of the living God. And the Spirit speaks to us and leads us and equips us with all these giftings for accomplishing the work of his kingdom. Probably not many of us in this congregation would call ourselves Pentecostals with all that that has come to mean in the history of the church, but I think every one of us should be people of Pentecost. We can't live a Christian life outside of our intimacy with the Holy Spirit. In this passage alone, Paul uses four different verbs to try to picture how that might work. He says we're led by the Spirit, we walk by the Spirit, we live by the Spirit, and finally we are urged to keep in step with the Spirit. Have you ever hired a guide to take you on an adventure? I don't mean like a city tour or a museum tour or something where they just kind of point and talk about things. I mean something where there's actually some genuine like risk of danger if you don't get it right. One of the most fun things our family got to do on this trip uh, was go for a walk in the bay of Mont Saint-Michel with a local guide. Um, the abbey is this little island just off the coast. And today, like so lots of silting up, the bay is fairly shallow with a barely perceptible slope as it heads out to sea, which means you can walk for miles when the tide is out. And it also means that when the tide is coming in, you better run pretty fast because it, it can eat up that distance really quickly. And uh, on top of that, there are several river channels that snake across the sands, as you can see here. And pockets of water can become trapped in places under a layer of sand which means if you pound them too much, they can like suddenly liquefy, quicksand, trap unsuspecting armies or tourists. So for all of those reasons, Mont Saint-Michel is a really bad place to try to capture with an army, and when the English and French were at war for like 100 years in medieval times, the English never managed to occupy this island. And tourists today who want to experience the traditional approach, where you do approach the island from the bay, are required to hire a certified guide to lead them. So I thought about trying to get us a private guide, because it just sounded so cool. So I did a bunch of research before we left on the trip, and like, you have to look every single one up individually, and their schedule, and the websites are in French, and like, there's no simple way to go about it. There were very few available, and they were terribly expensive, so I finally just gave up. And then we didn't even know if we were going, because COVID, so. It turned out we didn't book our adventure until the night before, and we, like, the weather was like 50% chance of rain and thunderstorms, and we just said, okay, we'll just join a group tour. It's a whole lot cheaper. So we chose an afternoon tour to give us a little more time to get there. We get checked into a hotel, get our shorts on and our rain jackets and stuff, and we get out there, we meet our guide, and we five were the tour. 
So we got our private English-speaking tour of the bay um, for like a third of the cost, which was pretty cool. And like most of the people in France that we met, he spoke a little English, which meant that as soon as he warmed up to us, he could give us full descriptions of the bay and all the wonderful naturalist things he loved about it and its history and maybe just a couple vocabulary words he was missing. It was amazing. So, and also the sun came out. Like I joked when I saw a tiny patch of blue like we do here, I said, oh look, it's a sunny day. But then it actually really came out. It's glorious. So we had this amazing walk. And when you have, I'm telling you, when you have someone leading you through patches of possibly treacherous terrain like that, these guys go out every day. And if he's gone for a week for vacation or something, he has to go back out and learn the bay for a day before he can take people out again, because it keeps changing. So you stick pretty close to that person. But more than that, I quickly realized that even though I could follow safely along at a distance of several meters, if I wanted to hear all the cool stuff he was saying, I was going to have to come in much closer. Today, that's become, for me, my new image for walking in step with the Spirit. But to know where I'll go, I certainly need to keep him in view. But you know, if I really want to reap the benefits of the relationship, I'm going to get as close as I can so I can hear and understand his voice. I don't want to miss the good stuff. And like any good guy, the Spirit will make sure I'm equipped with everything I need before I set out on the journey. Or if I need something along the way, I'll pull it out of that magical backpack that he's carrying along with us. I'm going to freely admit to you that this is a message short on practical applications. I'm not going to give you any how-tos on cultivating any particular fruit of the Spirit. And I'm very sensitive to the danger of indulging in all this high-minded language about abiding and intimacy and union and not having, without having a clue how it actually works in real life. I'll tell you, first of all, that I'm a fellow pilgrim right along with you. In real life, we find ourselves all too frequently beset by those passions or urgent desires or coveting that Paul ascribes to our fleshly nature. So I only really have two observations to share with you. My first is that I'm convinced, just like Paul warned us, that law abiding and rule following and all its associated mechanisms of enforcement and punishment, whether enforced formally by the state or informally, you know, the way communities police each other's behavior, I'm convinced that that does not lead to righteousness. Law, whether secular or sacred, can do this. It can constrain the worst excesses of our behavior, but it can't transform our hearts. Faced with a law, honestly, I only ever find myself asking, well, how much can I get away with? How fast, how fast can I go before I get pulled over? You know what? In France, they drive the speed limit, not 10 over. <laughs> we did not find that out from experience, just watching the other cars. I don't think it's our desire in itself that's our problem. As C.S. Lewis reminds us in The Weight of Glory, he says, you know, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. We are far too easily pleased. Rather than law, I think it's desire, 
activated by a godly imagination that we need. Paul says the flesh desires or covets in opposition to the spirit, but likewise the spirit desires in opposition to the flesh. I've come to the conviction that the only thing that really restrains us from doing something, our flesh desires, is when we want something else more. We don't easily give up what we want unless there's something bigger we want. Runners will give up their comfort for the love of the race. Mothers will give up their sleep for the love of the child. We'll give up a lot when we love something else. Maybe that's why love is the primary and exemplary fruit of the Spirit. There are some readings that actually suggest it's the singular fruit of the Spirit is love, understood and manifested as joy, peace, patience, and so forth. Whether you want to read it that way or not, it's certainly very clear in Paul and in John, the whole law is fulfilled in this command, love your neighbor as yourself. I think if we actually love, like if we longed for the well-being of another person, more than we value our own comfort and convenience and pleasure and self-image, then we will choose to behave as the law wanted us to do in the first place. That's the freedom to which Paul says we're called. My second observation is that while we do not cultivate fruit by tying it to trees, we do cultivate our intimacy with Christ. And that cultivation consists of a day-by-day or even like moment-by-moment series of conversations and choices and practices and surrenders. When it comes to your daily conscious practice of your faith, perhaps you might allow fruit to be your guide. Is there a particular discipline that you've always thought non-negotiable but that actually inspires like anxiety and dread in you? Does it make you more rigid or contentious or scornful of others? If so, maybe you could give yourself permission to release it. Maybe you thought it was essential, but you know what? You are saved by Christ plus nothing. Or do you notice that another practice does yield fruit? Maybe it's as simple as Anne Lamott's God Box, where she writes down the names of people and situations that she feels that she's trying to control, just puts them in the box and gives them back to God. It could be a a spiritual practice you haven't tried before, contemplative prayer, breathing, journaling. Might even consist in actions not normally considered religious, like offering hospitality, spiritual companionship, or even caring well for your body, because it is that temple where the Spirit dwells. Ask yourself, is this practice drawing me closer to Jesus so I can hear his voice? Is it yielding a harvest of greater peace or patience or self-control? Perhaps if it is, this is a path in which the Spirit is leading you at this time. Bottom line, if you long to see the fruit of the Spirit in your life, draw near to Jesus. Get as close as you can to hear that voice. Pray for an increase of holy, robust, passionate desire. Know who and whose you are and know that the story you are in is one that is not yet finished. It is a story of love poured out and death defanged and our eager expectation of our inheritance 
as beloved children of God. Jesus, I pray for this community to know you more deeply, to live more fully day by day in your love, to experience freedom in experimenting and finding paths that draw them closer to you. I pray that in contentious times, this would be a people who love each other well, a community marked by this appealing, sweet, desirable fruit that you grow in the lives of those who belong to you. In your name we pray. Amen.